Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this podcast series, we're aspiring to positively Oprah Winfrey levels of grit and tenacity as we leave no stone unturned in our forensic examination of all things to do with UK trade policy and related subjects. And in this episode, we're taking to the water as we examine the subject that nearly sunk last year's trade negotiations between the EU and the UK, namely fisheries. During the course of last year, the fishing communities of Western Europe suddenly realised how much they would miss us, or how they'd miss our fishing grounds, once we'd finally left behind the EU's common fisheries policy at the end of last year. And so a deal was done which repatriates some, but certainly not all, of the fish resources in UK waters back to UK control. It's probably fair to say that this deal has left many in the UK fishing community somewhat underwhelmed. But what exactly has been agreed? Was it ever realistic to have expected a better deal? And were we so preoccupied about establishing our rights to catch fish that we forgot about the question of how we were going to sell them once they were landed? To give their views on these questions and many others, I'm delighted to be joined today by a panel of experts who have a broad range of perspectives on this question. I'm joined by Professor Michael Gassirek, Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex. I'm joined to by Barry Dees, Chief Executive of the National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations. And also with us today is Susanna Walmsley, Principal Consultant and Fisheries and Aquaculture Business Development Manager at APB Mayor. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Barry Dees, the UK fishing community were among the most enthusiastic supporters of the campaign to leave the EU. So by way of setting the scene, what, in short, was wrong with the common fisheries policy? I think that the common fisheries policy was wrong for British fishermen right from the outset in the terms that were set in 1973. The principle of equal access was right at the heart of the common fisheries policy, and that was really a mechanism that gave access for the European fleets to continue to fish within the UK exclusive economic zone. And then, of course, when quotas came along in 1983, they weren't based on the UN law of the sea principles. They were based on historic patterns, which is why the UK share of Channel Cod, for example, is 9% and the French share is 84%. So really it ended up in a kind of asymmetric relationship. And then finally, the common fisheries policy didn't really do very well in terms of sustainable fisheries management. It was pretty cumbersome and unwieldy and really didn't deliver. So I think the original terms, the quota shares and the governance, fisheries governance, I think it failed the UK fishing industry on all those three points. Michael Gassiuk, fishing is a fairly small part of the economy. So why do you think it became such a totemic issue in the negotiations last year, which led to the trade and cooperation agreement between the EU and the UK? 
So I think, and following on on what Barry was just saying, I think those people working in the fishing industry and in fisheries have for some time argued that the common fisheries policy was not in some sense fair or didn't treat the UK in a manner that was, you know, reasonable in inverted commas. But what I think is interesting about this debate about fisheries also is that, and I haven't seen specific opinion polls on this, but I get a very strong sense that there was support in the country for the government's position with regard to the importance of a good deal on fisheries. It wasn't as if this was ever very contentious and that there was support for this. And that ties into your question, Chris. I think the reason for this is probably threefold. It's partly to do with Britain and UK's history as a maritime nation. It's partly to do with the importance of coastal communities, which also speaks a little bit to the levelling up agenda. And it's also directly strikes the heart of the issue of sovereignty, in particular, for example, the issue of whether EU boats can fish in the 6 to 12 nautical mile zone and so on. So it really strikes at the heart of, do we control our own waters or not? And that's why it became totemic, I think. Susanna Wormsley, in a nutshell, what was the agreement that was eventually reached on access to fishing grounds? So the agreement provides a framework, really, for managing shared stocks between the UK and the EU. And that's really important because if you don't have an agreement, you end up with stocks being overexploited and then everybody loses. So it sets out those principles around sustainability and fishing stocks at maximum sustainable yield levels. And then it provides access. And for the first five and a half years, so up to 2026, it allows for the continuation of the current sort of full access to each other's waters. And then beyond that, there's possibility for that to be sort of subject to negotiation. But then it also sets out these quota shares, which are sort of really the crux of the issue and what a lot of fishermen were unhappy with under the common fisheries policy. So there's an adjustment to those quota shares that we have, but that hasn't quite achieved what the UK was hoping to. It also provides access to the 6 to 12 mile zone in the south of England and the southern North Sea, English Channel and Bristol Channel for European vessels to continue fishing in that part of UK waters. And that's a zone that's normally reserved for inshore fleets and the UK fishers had hoped to regain. So, Barry, a 25% transfer of the value of the stocks in UK waters across the UK vessels. That doesn't sound like such a bad outcome to me. What's your view? The comparator is other coastal states. I think what the UK fishing industry and the government at one time was seeking was the same kind of relationship to the EU on fisheries that other coastal states have when they share stocks. In those circumstances, you know, countries like Norway or Faroes or, or Iceland, the shares are based on the principle of zonal attachment. That's basically the fish that are located in your waters. And that's pretty much what the UN law of the sea stipulates. That would mean that if you look at Norway, for example, something like 80 or 90 percent of the catch in Norwegian waters uh, would be by the national fleet with the balance used for non-Norwegian vessels. And that's really what we were seeking. I think where we are now is just over the halfway mark. So there's this huge distance between what we had in terms of aspirations uh, and legal entitlement and then what the the trade and cooperation agreement finally delivered. And of course, it's relevant that EU fleets fish about five or six times as much in value terms in UK waters as we fish in their waters. So there's this imbalance as well. 
So yeah, the 25% transfer of quota from the EU to UK seems like an improvement on the surface. You know, the EU vessels have been catching around £518 million worth of fish in UK waters. And the change to the quota shares reflect 25% of that value. So about £145 million worth of quota comes back to the UK. But when you start to dig a bit deeper into the details, it's not quite so clear. And the shift in percentages varies between stocks. So for some stocks, there's no change at all. And the channel cod stock that Barry mentioned, you know, which is this sort of iconic species where the UK only receives 9% of the quota, there's been no change at all to those quota shares. And then for other stocks, it's not clear whether the UK will actually be able to catch all of the quota, the additional quota that we receive. So Seoul in the North Sea, for example, our quota share has gone up or will go up from 4% to 17%. That's quite a big shift, potentially worth £20 million. But the UK hasn't actually been catching all of that 4% of, of its quota. So it's not clear whether that will really make any difference, having more quota for that stock. And then there are other North Sea whitefish stocks, which are hugely important to our fishing fleet, things like cod, haddock and whiting. And we've actually been landing more than our initial quota for those stocks in recent years by swapping quota with the EU so that we get more quota for the species that we want to fish. So for North Sea Hake, for example, there's been an increase from 18% to 54% for the UK, which is you know, a large increase. But in fact, that's just what the UK has been catching in recent years anyway. So it doesn't actually provide any real additional fish for the UK to catch. It's just sort of crystallising the status quo. And has the mechanism for organising these quota swaps with other EU member states, is that still there or has that now gone by the board? There's provision in the agreement for a mechanism to be set up, but it hasn't been set up yet. And we don't know what it will look like. We don't know if it will be as easy as the previous system or if there will be more sort of bureaucracy and delays involved. Was anyone actually clear what the government meant when it talked about taking back control of UK waters? I mean, it sounds more like a slogan than an objective. I'm just wondering whether the government was perhaps deliberately unclear, perhaps it overpromised in terms of what it led people to believe was a possibility. I just wonder what people's views on that might be. Well, I think that taking back control was a slogan. But I think it's one that works quite well in relation to fisheries because one of the positives to come out of the change that took place at Christmas time is regulatory autonomy. So that the UK and the EU, for that matter, have regulatory autonomy over their waters. That means they can set the conditions, the rules. Now, the EU will fight very strongly for alignment and continuity and convergence. I think the UK has other ideas and the the fisheries bill that was agreed towards the end of last year provides uh, UK fisheries ministers with the authority to manage our fisheries in a different way. And that, I think, speaks directly to this issue of control. I agree with what Barry has just said, but that's the art of a good slogan that it encapsulates something that has deeper meaning, but it is nevertheless sloganizing. And I think we've seen a lot of the use of these three-letter slogans over the course of the Brexit campaign. After all, the main Brexit slogan, get Brexit done, has a certain meaning to it, but it's very convenient sloganizing. So to go back to your question, Chris, I don't think the government was at all clear about what taking back control meant. I suspect that from the government's point of view, it was a very useful slogan to represent what they hoped 
to achieve from Brexit, but without being super clear about what they really wanted to achieve, which made it easier, having got an agreement, to claim that they had got what they achieved. Susanna, the fishing is important not just for the UK, but for a lot of other countries in Western Europe who fish in the same seas as we do. And of course, there was great political pressure put on on Michel Barnier and the Commission negotiating team not to give up too much in the way of their own access to UK waters, especially UK coastal waters. I wonder how successful you think Barnier and his team were in defending the rights and accumulated rights, I suppose, of those fishermen on the other side of the channel. Well, I think they were very successful and that's seen in the final deal, you know, particularly with the continuation of access to the UK's 6 to 12 mile zone which is a zone that's usually reserved for coastal inshore fishers of the country in question. But because of these historical access rights that we have under the CFP, you know, there are access rights for other countries under the CFP, and that's been now taken forward into the agreement. That zone is obviously very important, particularly for French fishermen, but also Dutch and Belgian fishermen. And it's that zone in the southern part of of England and the Bristol Channel that's the most important to EU fishermen. And that's the part that they were able to secure continued access to, much to the disappointment of UK fishermen, because they, you know, the UK felt that they'd really been promised to have this zone back under UK control. Yeah, I think there's a broader sense also in which I would agree with what Susanna just said, which is that generally, if you look at the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement in the UK and the EU, it is much closer in its final form to what the EU were demanding than to what the UK wanted, be this with regard to level playing field provisions, be this with regard to rules of origin or regulatory barriers or equivalents in financial services across a whole range of areas that deal including with regard to fisheries, is much closer to the EU position than the UK position. Yeah, I think also, I mean, sort of where it all went wrong for the UK was right at the very beginning when the EU linked fisheries to the wider trade agreement with the UK. And, you know, that ultimately meant that in order to secure a deal with the EU for all of the other sectors of the economy, there was some sacrifice that was necessary for the fisheries sector in order to achieve that. Barry, looking back from the perspective of where we are now, do you see it as inevitable that the fishing community would be sort of rather disappointed by the final outcome? To what extent did you genuinely expect that a better deal would be delivered? I think there was always a fear that what happened in 1973 when the fishing industry was sacrificed for broader national objectives would be repeated which is why you saw in hundreds of fishing vessels flags flying all last summer with the fishing no sellout logo on it. So it was a recognised fear. And of course, the realists in the industry recognised we might not get to zonal attachment in one go. But I think the fishing industry was given every reason from the prime minister to the chief negotiator, direct discussions, written statements, to believe that we are on the cusp of a a radical change in the right direction and that additional fishing opportunities would be the basis for regenerating many of our coastal communities. 
So I think we had reason to understand that we, after a long time out in the cold, had achieved a level of political priority that we we hadn't had before. In fact, one of the prime minister's um, political advisors told us that fishing had a philosophical level of protection. Those were his words, which I noted down very carefully. So that's why I think the final deal, and I completely agree with Susanna that the writing was on the wall from the outset in, in the terms of the EU's negotiating mandate that linked trade and fisheries. But, you know, I think the fishing industry, because of the public statements and repeated statements that were made at the highest political level, believed that we would have a different outcome from the one that we have now. So, Barry, you touched on there this question of markets and exports. And we've seen, particularly for shellfish, we've seen a very well-publicized problems since the 1st of January with products being transported to France and the continent and all sorts of health checks and various customs bureaucracy being imposed on those highly perishable products, which is not great news. Are there any signs that you can see of any kind of facilitation starting to emerge to facilitate these flows of trade in fresh fish and fisheries products? I think things have improved since January, but also we're seeing alongside that improvement, the reduction of delays. There are more deeply embedded problems like the export of bivalve mollusks and the the health rules. Now, nothing's changed from before Christmas to after the new year in terms of the health certification, etc. It's just that the EU are interpreting their rules in a way that hasn't been anticipated. And that is an absolute problem for the companies that are involved in that trade. And then there's a difficulty with groupage. That's when relatively small amounts of fish, small buyers group together to put a consignment. And if one of those buyers gets the paperwork wrong, then the consignment is delayed. And, you know, we're dealing with a perishable commodity here. Uh, You can lose value very, very quickly. And also, I think we're facing higher costs than we even anticipated. We, We knew that leaving the single market would mean more frictions, more costs, more paperwork. But I don't think it was anticipated that it would be, the costs would be on, on the scale that they're they're facing. So I think we're feeling pretty raw because we feel that we've got the worst of all words. It was supposed to be a, a trade between trade and f- fish, if you like, uh, fishing rights and trade. We seem to have got a bad deal on fishing rights and we have these very significant impediments to exporting fish and shellfish into the European market. Sorry, I can't resist another question here, really. I guess it's to Barry and Susanna, but it's, I, you know, there's, there's clearly a difference between the difficulties of exporting bivalve mollusks, which at the moment the EU is saying, you know, depending on the waters that they have been fished in, some can be exported and some can't. And for those that can't, that's just an outright ban. And the difficulties the salmon industry has been reporting about the increased cost of the paperwork and the bureaucracy involved. And remembering that salmon, as far as I understand, is by far the biggest of our fish exports and fish exports to the EU. To what extent are those additional bureaucratic costs transitional while firms get used to them? Or to what extent is this a permanent increase in costs, which is greater than what was anticipated? I think that's a $64,000 question. I think the costs that are being experienced now are significantly higher than were advertised and anticipated. 
But I also think things can be done to ameliorate the position over time. The EU could take a pragmatic view on bivalve mollusks because there's no health issue involved. We're doing the same thing now that we were doing before. And there are exemptions that have been made for other countries that export bivalve mollusks into the EU. So I think that that is something, if the will is there, that that could be resolved. I also think that the paperwork could be streamlined. And I think that that should improve over time. The question mark is really over you know, cash flow, the resilience of businesses, small businesses, medium businesses, larger businesses in this sector. And, you know, as this adjustment is made, as these improvements are made, whether they can weather the storm, I think that's the question that we're facing at the moment. Susanna, we've mentioned a few times today that we've got this settlement, which lasts for five and a half years, running to 30th of June 2026. And then after that, in theory, everything is up for grabs again. Do you think there's any real prospect of an improvement for UK fisheries opportunities at that point? Or does the fact that the agreement says, OK, well, you can change the access agreement, but then that might have implications for tariffs. Does that actually leave the UK in a bind going forward beyond July 1st, 2026? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is another of the $64,000 questions. You know, I mean, the the politicians have been indicating that everything can be renegotiated in 2026. And, you know, Michael Gove said, you know, in due course, we'll have that opportunity to increase the quotas even further. And that's just not what's set out in the agreement at all. The quota shares in the agreement are fixed you know, beyond 2026, there's no provision in the agreement to renegotiate those quota shares. The only thing that can be renegotiated is the level of access to UK waters for EU vessels. And obviously, there are penalties that come from reducing any access to the EU, which could involve adding tariffs onto fish products for exports, which I think will make it difficult to change things substantively. Yeah, there's a broader dimension to the question and to Susanna's answer as well, which is, you know, there are several ways in which the agreement between the UK and the EU allows for renegotiation and changing elements of the agreement in all sorts of dimensions beyond fisheries and so on. And the 64000 or $64 million question, perhaps, is how is that going to operate in practice? Because on the one hand, one could argue that that's built in some flexibility, it's built in the opportunity for deepening the relationship, for changing the relationship for moving it forward and that could be in fisheries it could be in other areas as well on the other hand it offers plenty of opportunity for more conflict and for difficulties to arise because either party is is seeing problems a lot of that will depend on the degree of goodwill yeah if i just add on really to my, my previous point so yeah in addition the agreement sets out quite clearly the access that is to be expected beyond 2026 which is essentially a continuation of the current levels of access so any change or any reduction in that access may well be subject to retaliatory tariffs and i think there's lack of any perspective to change and adjust the quota shares in the agreement is a shame it's a bit of a missed opportunity because you know the climate is changing stock distributions are changing and so over time you can end up with a mismatch between quota availability and what fish are actually on the fishing grounds and so there's a need for more flexibility and i think a more forward looking agreement could have built in some flexibility around that I think Susanna's right. I mean, climate change, higher water temperatures, changing patterns of fish distribution mean that what is agreed there in terms of quota shares 
it's going to be increasingly problematic, especially if we don't have an effective way of, of making quota exchanges. So I think had Brexit not come along, the Commission would have been one of those in the lead for quota changes to move away from uh, the relative stability formula. I wanted really to agree with Michael that you know, that we've not got off to a good start in terms of future relations between the UK and the EU. My feeling is that this is not over. Fishing will now be, it will remain a toxic issue between the UK and the EU. And it will do that until there's a new equilibrium that is consistent with the UK's rights under UN law of the sea. The situation that we have now is is aberrant, really, in terms of international comparisons. And, you know, this could go on for decades. It could poison relations between the UK and the EU. So I think it's quite depressing, really, that we're in for a very difficult, conflictual relationship for a, a long, long time. I think there's a certain amount of uh, smugness in parts of the EU team, not all, because I think some member states are feeling raw that they've had to give up some quota. But certainly in the Commission, I can detect a certain smugness. I think that that is misplaced. I think we're into a problematic space for a long time now. I agree with Barry on this. I think we are into a problematic space for a while. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of this discussion, we talked about why fisheries is so important for the UK. But let's not forget, it's also equally important for certain of the EU member states, you know, for France and Denmark and so on, has very high political sensitivity. So it's very hard for them to shift their position, just as it was hard for the UK, at least on the face of it, to shift on its position. We're nearly out of time, so we need to wrap our podcast up. I'd just like to ask each of you in turn quite briefly to comment on something which Susanna wrote in a white paper recently for ABP Mayor. She said the UK industry may find itself asking whether all of this was worth it, the negotiations for the deal which eventually emerged last year. So let's see what your views are on that. Barry, was it worth the effort the deal which emerged last December? I don't think the UK fishing industry had any choice but to try to secure the best deal that it could consistent with its rights, the UK's rights under international law. I think it would have been a bit bizarre if we hadn't striven as best we could to get the best outcome. So the fact that it's turned out very badly for us, both in terms of quota shares, access arrangements, and indeed access to markets, I don't think that that, even if we had a crystal ball, would have meant that we would have done anything differently. Because I think, you know, what we have really between the UK and the EU is, is a, on fish. It's a sort of neo-colonial relationship where, you know, big power politics ensure that the EU fleets have free access to exploit the resource of another country. Well, you know, that comes pretty close to the kind of definition of neocolonialism. So I think that to come back to it, I don't think that the fishing industry here had really much choice but to make the best fist of it that it could. Susanna, how would you answer your rhetorical question? I think, you know, for the sake of the UK as a whole and for the sustainability of fish stocks, it's good that we came to a deal, that we reached an agreement. 
But I do think it's very disappointing for the UK fishing industry and for fisheries. You know, as Barry has said, these are sort of agreements that are based on an imbalance of power. And that ends up with, you know, if you look at fisheries on its own, an outcome that's not ideal for fisheries at all. Michael, a last word from you. I think it's right that it's better to have a deal than to have not had a deal. And clearly, if we hadn't had a deal, for example, then there would have been tariffs introduced on exports of fish to the EU, which in certain cases, such as mackerel or herring, is around 14%. That would have damaged the industry even more. The fact that there is some more regulatory autonomy, as Barry was saying earlier, that's a good thing. But overall, this is not a great deal for fisheries. Could we have done better? Not given that the government decided to go for a hard Brexit. Once the government had decided it was going to go for a very hard type of Brexit, then it was. I think it's hard to see that we could have got a much better deal. In alternative worlds, where the government wanted a deeper relationship with the EU, perhaps a better deal could have been got, but that was decided some time back that we weren't going down that route. Indeed. So there, I'm afraid we have to leave the debate for today. I'd like to say a big thank you to my guests, to Professor Michael Gasiorek, to Barry Dees, and to Susanna Walmsley. And we'd have got very lonely indeed if you hadn't been there listening in. So thanks for doing that. And please join us again next time when we do the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.